This morning, uh, Kathy Wood is going to do our uh, scripture reading and uh, pray for us. Kathy? One of the questions, or the main question, that I want to answer this morning as we look at this passage and as we prepare to partake of communion here in the next few moments is, uh, what purpose does communion serve in the local church? What purpose does it serve? Why, why do we do this? Uh, and if we stop doing it, would it have any effect upon our uh, unity as a church? Would it have any effect upon our uh, con- spiritual condition with God? Or you could reverse the question and ask, uh, what benefit uh, does participating in the Lord's Supper uh, have on our personal walk with God? And more importantly, I think, on our unity as a congregation. You know, why did Jesus command uh, that we do this? Why did He command that we partake of the Lord's Supper? And I think this passage, uh, among other passages in the Bible, but, but I think this passage particularly helps uh, answer that question uh, for us uh, this morning. Now, as we looked at uh, the or as we heard Kathy read just a moment ago, uh, one of the first questions that I have from this passage is, you know, when, when verse 14 says that uh, Paul is writing, therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry. Uh, one of the first questions I have, what does idolatry have to do with communion? 
How are these things uh, connected? Because earlier in the chapter, Paul is, is talking about idolatry, and it seems like the, the, whole, uh, the whole shift of this chapter is addressing idolatry and false worship. So well, why does Paul insert uh, communion into this passage? Well, how is communion connected to idolatry? Well, I think maybe it's helpful if we ask the question of what does or what is idolatry? Uh, what is idolatry? A lot of times we think about, well, idolatry is maybe that's just what the uh, uh, Israelites did in the wilderness. They built that golden calf and they shaped it and, and Aaron formed it. And that's idolatry. Or idolatry is if I went and, and bought a little Buddha uh, statue and I put him uh, in my house. Or if I carved some image or totem pole, that would be idolatry. Now, in some ways, yes, that is idolatry, but is that what uh, Paul and the biblical authors are getting at when they address idolatry? If you think back to uh, Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, uh, the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's God saying, You shall have no other gods before me. And it addresses idolatry. And what it gets at, what you see is that, that the author is talking about that idolatry is worshiping something in place of God. So anything that is worshipped by us in place of the one true living God and His Son Jesus Christ is an idol. So it doesn't have to be a little statue that you stick uh, on your mantle. It doesn't have to be a carved image of gold or a Buddha statue. It can be something that in essence, is, is good, but that we have made it an idol. We'll talk about some of those things in a minute. But when we talk about an idol as something that we worship, you know, what is worship? Unfortunately, a lot of people today associate worship with just, you know, opening up a hymn book and singing some songs or, or playing a guitar or playing a piano, and that's what worship is. Well, that's an aspect of worship, but, but worship is much broader than that. It's much more than that. It's a condition of our, our hearts. You know, what we worship is the things that we admire or we see as uh, majestic or the things that we are in awe of, the things that, that we desire to have fellowship and communion with. Those are the things that, that we worship. So if, I, if you want to know what is it that you worship, you can begin asking your questions about your heart. What are the things that your heart yearns for? Does it yearn for attention? Well, then you worship the approval of others. Does it yearn for some type of uh, earthly pleasure? Does it, does it yearn for power? Well, then you worship power. Does it yearn for, uh, for financial uh, 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 bountifulness? Well, then you worship money. Uh, does it yearn? You could go on and on and on with these things. But what our heart uh, is in awe of, what our heart yearns for, what our heart desires the most is what we worship the most, and therefore that is what our idol is. Now, what does that have to do with communion? If we notice what Paul says in verse 16, he says, he starts talking about, uh, in verse 14 he says, flee from idolatry. And then in verse 16 he says, The cup of blessing, which he's referring to, to the cup here. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not communion or participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not communion or participation in the body of Christ? 
Now, depending on your translation, your translation either has the word communion or the word participation, most likely. Now, the word here is a strong word. Uh, Paul is trying to say here, he's saying that when we participate in communion, in the Lord's Supper, what's going on there? And he's saying, is it not an actual fellowship, communion, participation with Christ Himself? So that oftentimes we think about communion, if we think about it at all, of being something that is very uh, individualistic. We think about our own personal sin and, and how we've sinned against God. And those, thing, those things are good. But Paul is, is saying that you need a broader view of that. He's saying that when you are partaking of communion and when you're partaking of the Lord's Supper is that in one way it symbolizes our fellowship with God, but it also is meant to, to strengthen that fellowship. That as we are with our mouths drinking of the cup, our souls are to be drinking from the blood of Christ. And as our mouths are eating of the bread, then our, then our souls are to be eating and communing with the body of Christ. And this idea of fellowship and oneness. And in that is the idea of worship. That we are having fellowship with the one that we are claiming to be Lord. The one that we're claiming to be God. The one that we're claiming to say that has, through His death and resurrection, has satisfied God's wrath. That He has, he has paid the price for our sin. That He, and through His word, we can be reconciled to God. So there's a recognition that in communion, it is a time where we're acknowledging the worship of God and that we are acknowledging that we have, we have turned from all the idols of this world and we are turning to Christ. And in that, it's more than just an intellectual decision. But there's actually something spiritually significant that takes place. That we have union and fellowship with God. That it's not just a decision that, that you made one day. And that there is nothing spiritually that takes place, but actually a new heart is given. And with the new heart, there's actual genuine fellowship with God that is resembled or resembles what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. And it foreshadows the true fellowship that we will have with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So what does this have to again to do with idolatry? Paul goes on in this passage. He's talking about the people of Israel. And in verse 19, he's talking about sacrifices that are made. And then in verse 20, he says that, he says, what I'm implying here is that what pagans sacrifice and offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He is? Now what he seems to be suggesting here is that you cannot have fellowship with God. You cannot have communion with God and with other gods. Now in reality there are no other gods, but there are things that we make into gods. And what's interesting here is that Paul is not limiting this again to just some carved idols. Notice what he says in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 7, where he's talking about the nation of Israel and their idolatry. So in chapter, the same chapter, but just a few verses up from what we read earlier, in verse 7, he's talking about the Israelites after they have just uh, been delivered from Egypt and they've crossed over the Red Sea and they're in uh, the wilderness. And notice what he 
does as he's describing them. He's saying, don't be idolaters. This is verse 7 of chapter 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them, and them are the Israelites under Moses, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now what's interesting is, in verse 7, he says, don't be idolaters like them. And then he begins listing examples of the way that they were idolaters. Now we know that they did make the golden calf, and that was one form of idolatry. But that's not what he listed here. He began listing actions that they were doing. He said that they were idolaters. And he said that one of the ways that they were idolaters is that all they did was eat and drink and they rose up to play. And something else that they did. They were indulging in sexual immorality. Something else that they did. They were, they were grumbling and complaining. So Paul is saying that these were ways that the Israelites had idols before them. And when we're grumbling and complaining, when we're using the gift of sex without the boundaries that God has given us, and when, as he says, all they're doing is eating and drinking and playing, all things that in other themselves are not inherently evil, it's not simple to eat, it's not simple to drink, it's not simple to play. But they had taken these things that were gifts of God and they had removed the God-given boundaries and they were using them as an idol. And what we see here is that their idol was themselves. So if we want to find idols in our home, the best place to look isn't the mantle. The best place to look is in the shelf. Oftentimes, the best place to look is in the mirror. That is where we will find our idols. To where instead of trusting God, they were consumed with their own pleasure. They were consumed with their own desires. They were consumed with doing what they wanted to do. Instead of saying, God, we want to live under your boundaries, they say, God, we want to live how we want to live. And therefore, their idol was themselves. And the result was divisions among the people. The result was punishment among the people. And Paul is using this as a, as a call to the Corinthian church, and therefore a call to us to flee from the, this idolatry. And he's saying that you can't worship and have fellowship with God and worship yourself. You can't have both ends. It has to be either or. And you say one of the ways that the Lord's Supper, or one of the purposes that the Lord's Supper has, is that it reminds us that we have communion with God. That we have said to the world, we say, no, I, I am not making myself an idol. I'm not going to be the one who says what is right and wrong. I'm not going to set the boundaries of what is permissible and not permissible. But that I am saying that God has set those boundaries and I'm submitting my life under His authority. And I'm trusting Christ. And in that there is genuine union and fellowship. The fellowship that our souls long for. 
And communion is meant to do that. Communion is meant to renew us to the Lordship of Christ. As we say, there are no idols before me, but my King is Christ. And He is the one that I worship. It also is meant to renew us to a congregation as a whole. We're meant to renew us to each other. Notice here again in verse 17, it says that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now one of the things that has happened in uh, our American society where we grow in uh, technology and grow in all these different things, a way to make things easy. Uh, One of the things that has been made easier is uh, how to prepare for the Lord's Supper. You can go to Lifeway and you can you can buy a big box of individual little uh, little crackers and most churches do that. I grew up in a church that we use saltines and you know my dad used to be there on Sunday morning breaking up the saltine crackers and, and all those things and that's good it, it, it is but but what is lost is there is something that's lost that is conveyed in this verse. How many loaves does Paul say that there is? How many? He's saying there's one. There's one loaf. And because there is one loaf, there is how many bodies? One body. One body. So that one of the things that should be taking place in the celebration of communion is a renewal to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So in a moment when we take the blanket off, we're going to have one loaf... And that one loaf, why is there one loaf? There's theological significance to the fact that we use one loaf. Because we are one body. But yes, we are separate individuals. We have different likes, we have different opinions on things, and we have different tastes. Some of us like to hunt, some of us don't. Some like to shop, some don't. Some like Duke, some like Carolina, some like State. Uh, some like uh, sweaters, some don't like that. And we go on and on. There are lots of things that separate us. You know, but the most important thing in life is that which unifies us. And that is the fact that all who have faith in Christ not only have communion with Christ, but we have real spiritual communion with each other. There are lots of jokes that I've heard about, you know, churches having divisions and splitting and things. And you hear all these jokes about that. And and oftentimes, Baptist churches are are known more than any kind of other church as having divisions. And we laugh about that sometimes. But but in reality, that is a shameful disgrace to the gospel. There are few things that can be more shameful to the gospel and more of a disgrace to the gospel than speaking ill of another brother or sister in Christ. And so we have the Lord's Supper to remind us of a, yeah, we may disagree about everything in life, but the most important thing in life we agree on. And that is that Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, that He died on the cross, And that He was raised from the dead and all who have faith and trust in Him 
are united with Christ and therefore united with the whole body of Christ. So therefore, when there are divisions in the congregation, some things are worthy to be divided over. So if you tell me that, yes, you know, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, guess what? We're going to have a division. We're, we're going to have a division. Some, some divisions are godly divisions. If you tell me that, no, I don't think it's only through faith in Christ someone can be saved, or no, I, I think you need to do this and that and that, we will have a biblical division. But when you think about the things that divide congregations... 99.9% of the time, they are not biblically justified divisions. They are a result of idolatry. They are a result of individuals saying, what I want above all is what I want. Instead of what God wants. That I will decide what is best. I will decide what is the right way. I will decide what the boundaries are. I, 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 I. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. And that's why Paul is saying, flee it. Flee idolatry. Flee the flesh's desire to celebrate yourself. And have communion with Christ and unity in the body. So that this is a time to where we are to reflect. You know, in in chapter 11, just one chapter over, in verse 29, Paul says when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. A lot of times people take that as that you're supposed to discern your own personal standing before God and confess sin and repent of it, which is a good thing. But I think what Paul is talking about there, when he says body, he's not talking about the physical body. He's talking about the church body. So that one of the things that should be done when we partake of the Lord's Supper is there is a reflection by every single person in the congregation of whether or not you have done anything to harm or wrong a brother or sister in Christ. And that you repent of that. And instead of promoting disunity, you promote unity. And so one of the things that Paul warns against in chapter 11 is partaking of the Lord's Supper when that hasn't taken place. Because this is supposed to not only symbolically represent something, but it's also a reality that when we partake, we're saying that Christ is my Lord, so we're being renewed to Christ, and we're saying, I'm done with the idols, but we're also saying, this church family is my family. And we're being renewed to one another. So if there are idols that have the affections of our heart, We need to turn from those before we partake of the supper. If there are divisions in the congregation, those need to be reconciled before partaking of the supper. And so you know better than I do how to answer those questions. Whether or not there's idols in your heart, or whether or not there's divisions in the congregation that need to be repented of and reconciled. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, 
when we partake of communion, that it not only symbolizes our communion with Christ and with, with each other, but it actually strengthens our communion with Christ and with each other. One of the ways that we can take good things and use them as idols. How many of you love your family? I love my family. I'm thankful for my mom and dad and my brother and sister and their kids. And I'm thankful for Jasmine and her family. We all have a great relationship. And uh, I wish I lived closer to them. And they wish they lived closer to me. And I, you know, I wish I could go see them all the time. I love them. But you know I have a family that is more significant than that family. And that's the family of the body of Christ. Not only of members here, but the church worldwide. And so, one of the ways to test our hearts is asking yourself, you know, is your allegiance stronger to the Wood family or the Murphy family or the Gupton family? You know, that about covers everybody here, just about Leonard family. Or, you know, put whatever other family you want to put in there. Is it stronger to the, to the family name or is it stronger to the body of Christ? doesn't mean you don't love your family, but it means that there is a priority. You know, even Jesus Himself said, you know, no one can follow Me unless you hate your, your mother, your father, and your other family members. Does that mean I'm supposed to literally hate my mom and dad? No. But what it does mean is that if I'm forced to choose between my parents and Christ, then I better choose Christ. And so is our, where is our primary allegiance? Is it with who we are in the community? Or is it who we are in this congregation? Just followers of Christ. And when we recognize that, and when we are reminded of that, that does a world of help in helping us to look past things that may otherwise divide us. Because, do we agree on everything? No, I don't agree on everything with my wife. And what, you know, no spouse, you, there's no other person that you would agree with absolutely on everything. So there are things we would disagree on. Even things in regard to interpretation of the Bible that we would disagree on. But do we disagree on the things that unify us? Which is the Gospel. And as long as there is agreement there on what unifies us in the Gospel that it is through Christ alone and faith alone that there is true communion with God, then we are unified in the most essential truth in the world. And therefore, whatever disagreement we may have on other matters is not of eternal significance. So I pray that as we prepare to do this communion this morning, that the Lord would work in your hearts and in our hearts as a congregation and that we would be genuinely renewed to Christ and genuinely renewed to one another. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.